With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I hope everyone had um, a wonderful Christmas, a fantastic Hanukkah, and celebrated the completely arbitrary turning of a calendar page um and, and ways that made them that made their lives better and and richer and whatever your resolutions i hope they last at least until the ides of january okay so we've been sort of short on big picture punditry state of america thumb suckery um and i figure since we are beginning a new year um where everything is going to get worse um we should uh have uh, my friend and colleague Matt Continetti back. Uh, Matt, you're now, again, we've talked about this before. This is a known thing, but I can never remember your actual title because you're management now. You're a suit. I am a suit. You were a suit. Uh, You're also the comment. I hate the way pod always has to put the word commentary in the title of people who write for commentary. So you're either the media commentary, commentary columnist. Is that right? I'm actually, Jonah, there was a, there was a shakeup in commentary a few years ago. Uh And so I, move from the media commentary oh, right. You're the Washington column to now the Washington column. I apologize. In both cases, replacing my friend and idol, Andrew Ferguson, shoes I cannot fill in any way, but I simply look up to the shoes every time I begin typing out a new column. Andy is a truly great American. I will agree with you Indeed. on that. Um, and, uh, but you are now the head of the, the domestic policy. I, I as as you know, uh, you are to refer to me as hair director That's right. because I am the director of domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute from housing to poverty and opportunity. You have to have both. Uh-huh. Can't just study one or the other uh, to uh, a new center um, uh, that we're forming on the study of science, technology and energy, which I'm very excited about. Um, so w- a whole range of scholarship falls under my purview at AEI. Um, are we bringing anyone new for, this, for the science and technology thing? We, we, we are. Stay tuned. Okay. All right. this is very no exciting. spoilers here, but All right. stay tuned. Because, you know, we at the Dispatch very much want to get a science and technology uh, correspondent uh, writer person. So uh, maybe there can be some synergies here. That would be very exciting. Okay. so. Um, where to begin? Um, let's, what was it Hegel said? Um, the owl of Minerva only flies at dusk. Flies at dusk. Um, so why don't we, in that spirit, just very briefly look back on 2023. Um, what politically surprised you or disappointed you or made you start cutting yourself about 2023? Those are your three options. Well, um, 2023 was a pretty bad year. Um, maybe the worst year of my life, uh, I'm, I'm, I will turn personally, but no, no, uh, geopolitically, um, I'll turn 43 in June. So, uh, you have, I have 42 years of, uh, experience. Um, why was it so bad? I think you have to start with the world situation, um, with the ongoing war in Ukraine, the failure of the Ukrainian counteroffensive to make measurable gains, uh, against the Russians. Um, you have to then look at the massacre on October 7th, um, the, the pogrom, uh, that Hamas initiated against the Jews living around Gaza and the war that, uh, continues, uh, to, uh, eliminate Hamas as a political organization from the Gaza Strip. 
uh, those two events uh, are bleak. Um, the bad guys are winning. Um, you have the continued belligerence uh, of Xi Jinping in China. You have a, essentially two threats uh, from Xi Jinping in recent months. One in private recently reported uh, a conversation between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden at their uh, All is Good and Well Summit in California in November, where Xi Jinping said, look, um, I'm going to I'm going to unify with Taiwan and I'm going to do it on my schedule. So, you know, just let me do it. L leave me to my my business. Don't make any guesses about when I'm going to unify with Taiwan. And then uh, in his New Year's Day message, uh, Xi Jinping uh, said that the unification is uh, going to happen. Um, and this occurs, by the way, amidst this backdrop of the ongoing purge of the Chinese government that Xi Jinping has been um, pursuing, replacing minister after minister, including a, a new defense minister. Um, and it makes one wonder whether that is in preparation uh, for something big to happen in 2024. But we're still talking about 2023. So that's geopolitically pretty miserable. Uh, also, the Ukraine counteroffensive turned out to be less than desired. Right, um, yeah, there's, I mean, right, exactly. And that's the stalemate there. And then you have politically in America, uh, just a, a total mess. Um, the continued crisis at the southern border spilling uh, across the country, uh, especially in blue states, with these right to shelter laws that have created housing shortages and um, homeless migrants in places like New York City, um, in the Boston area, and also in the Chicago area in Illinois. Um, you have the our own stalemate in Congress now, where the extremely narrow House majority uh, seems unable or unwilling uh, to commit to a new aid package that would include money for Ukraine, Israel, um, some Indo-Pacific money, uh, as well as potentially changes to our asylum programs and immigration laws to address what's going on at the southern border. Uh, and you also have uh, Biden, uh, the President Biden, who is deeply unpopular. We're seeing something very odd in the polling, just the most recent USA Today Suffolk poll released in the past 24 hours uh, shows this. The Democratic coalition is essentially exploding. Um, and I'm, I'm saying exploding because par constituent groups are, le are leaving it. They're, they're right. going out. So you have this extraordinary situation where Biden is the uh, most unpopular president uh, leading into a re-election year in the history of public polling. And key d democratic groups like African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and young people are just exiting uh, the Biden coalition. They're not all going to the Republicans, which we, we need to emphasize, but many, uh, especially the young people, are in, interested in these third party candidates like RFK Jr., Cornell West and others. So you, when you look at the domestic landscape, you see dysfunction, uh, entropy, um, uh, a, a kind of slowness, uh, you know, um, decrepitude may be the right word, just kind of across the board. And then you turn to the Republican Party. And uh, I'd say the biggest surprise to me of the Republican presidential primary so far has been that Republicans are allowing Democrats to determine the nominee. So that if you think about the political landscape in 2023, the most important moments were not actions or speeches by any of the Republican candidates. They were actions taken by progressive prosecutors. Right throughout the country. And it's those indictments of Donald Trump, uh, beginning with the New York indictment in the spring of 2023, that I believe uh, has elevated him to a position of um, far and away the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, uh, which is something I am I, not happy about. <laughs> and um, I don't think uh, the country, uh, when we turn to the general election later this year, will be happy about either. Yeah, so um, we don't need to dwell on the 
retrospective part because there's nothing we can do about it. Um, it's but gone. On the, on the prospective part, um, you know, it is entirely possible if you didn't have the giant magnet of Trump next to the compass, we would, you could say a lot of these trends are actually good things, right? In so far as, like, I actually, I, I, I sincerely believe one of the best things that could happen for minorities in America is for the continued assimilation of Hispanics as, and it, like, just like Italians and Irish before them as right. just another ethnic group, right? right. And, um, because that would deal such an unbelievable blow to the whole business model of the sort of Democratic Party. Um, and it would be good for Hispanics, you know, because I'm, I'm all about expanding the scope of bourgeois values far and wide. I want That's everyone what to be, America's about. Yeah, I, I want everyone to be a two-parent suburban family who cares a lot about how to pay their kids way through college. That's what right. I want everyone in America to be. Um, and... Uh, but then there's the problem of that the Republican Party is in no position to um, exploit the situation. And it's and it, it occurred to me, you know, my shtick. I don't think you disagree with it. It's also our friend Chris Starwald's shtick that about the weak party stuff. Right. It's, it seems to me in this kerfuffle about Nikki Haley and the slavery thing. I just wrote my L.A. Times column about it. It seems like part of the problem. Is that. In a climate where, with weak parties, you also have a weak commitment to good politicians, right? If you called someone a good politician. Oh, yeah. That's an incredible insult. Well, especially in the Republican Party. Especially in the Republican Party, right? Republicans like, hate politicians. But even if, if you look at the way Bill Clinton is thought of, mm -hmm. right? Bill Clinton, say what you will, but it was a fantastic politician. <laughs> and... Yeah. Um, and a lot of the stuff that people like us dinged on and 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 could not stand about, you know, I would have voted with the minority. I would have sided with, I agree with the minority, but I would have voted with the majority on the Gulf War. Um, I smoked marijuana, but I didn't inhale. We all laughed at that stuff and whatever, because it seemed to reflect his political soul. That kind of maneuvering and triangulating or whatever broke the Democratic Party's logjam on the White House. Um, because it was just smart politics, the game he played. And now we have Nikki Haley, who I think, just as an actual politician, forget philosophically and all that kind of stuff, she's probably the best of the bunch. Um, and that is seen as a strike against her, right? And that's, I think, the, the repercussion of the slavery gaffe thing was that it was a gaffe, it was a bad answer, but it didn't reveal any underlying racism or anything like that. It revealed that, she she thinks too much about pandering or catering to what the audience wants to hear. And um, and I don't know how a political party fixes itself if it is concluded that anyone who's good at politics is a bad person that they can't support. Right. Well, I think I, I think it shows you how different politics is today from the 1990s or even from 2010 when Nikki Haley was elected the governor. Yeah. of South Carolina. Um, remember the Kinsley gaffe, right? Uh, Michael Kinsley saying that a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth. In this case, uh, Nikki Haley did not tell the truth about the Civil War, right. but she did kind of reveal the truth about herself, which is she is a Paul. She is a very talented politician. She's good on the stump. She has some of her lines down. She's charismatic. She's attractive. But She's also calculating and can be very cynical. And we've known this about her for years. I mean, think about all the different positions she's taking vis-a-vis Trump, right. for whom she may end up being the vice presidential nominee later this year. So that's why I think the gaffe kind of hurt Haley, is that it reminded Republicans, as well as the rest of the country, that at the end of the day, she's a politician. And we are in a very anti-political mood. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, Trump uh, it, is not a, the traditional politician, right? Uh, he came, came in, he kind of changed the Republican Party to something that is very different uh, than it was even in 2010, certainly in 2008. But on the Democratic side, Again, if you just look at how that Democratic coalition is breaking apart, you get the sense that uh, for many 
traditional Democratic constituencies, they're unhappy with Joe Biden, who is also a classic Paul, right? Mm -hmm. The Irish backslapper. He's been around for 50 years. He knows everybody. Uh, He's always touching people in vaguely uncomfortable ways. Uh, These were all kind of skills of what you associated with classic political actors. But now people are sour on him, too. Um, Now, this is, I think, a bad thing. I I do kind of agree with you. I, I, I was a young person during the Clinton administration. But I remember reading a column that Charles Krauthammer wrote in 1997, I think, in my local paper, the Washington Post, saying, look, um, this is the golden age of America. It's mm-hmm. not going to get any better than the late 1990s. And I remember reading that at the breakfast table when it first appeared. And I think about that column all right, a lot because Charles is right, as mm-hmm. usual. So I'd like to get back to something like that or yeah. create the new conditions for another golden age in America. And that does require, uh, one, um, skilled political leadership. And two, politicians who are able to, I think, challenge their core constituencies or some of the sacred cows within their coalition. And we always talk about triangulation and we associate it with Bill Clinton. But we remember that Bill Clinton really took political risks mm-hmm. saying that the Democratic Party needed to change and that the Democratic Party needed to get tough on crime or that Sister Soldier was a race hustler and his politics were not going to be like that or that we had to address affirmative action uh, or that we had to change welfare. These were all ran against the current in the Democratic Party of the time and it redounded to Clinton's benefit and to, I think, the benefit of the countries. The Republican Party's problem and uh, some is the, what Mike Murphy once said, and I think it was spot on, is that Republicans treat their base voters as swing voters. Mm-hmm. Republicans are always trying to keep the va- base voters in the coalition. Right. They spend all that time to the expense of not actually looking at the swing voters. Yeah. I do think Haley in particular would have some appeal to swing voters. But with that answer that she gave on the Civil War, it's a classic case of oh, how do I get right with not just not even the base of the Republican Party nationally, but she's thinking in her mind, the base of the Republican Party in South Carolina, when she was first running for office uh, some um, 14 years ago now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think the reasons for Nikki's screw up were one, she thought it was a gotcha question and she thought she overthought how to anticipate the problem Two, muscle memory from South Carolina. Right. Um, which is something the left really doesn't understand is like, you know, again, full disclosure, my wife was a writer for her and was speech writer for her and knows Nikki. Well, um, I don't, but when Nikki Haley took down that flag, it's not like she just ordered it being taken down. She had to persuade a bunch of cranky old Dixiecrat adjacent, you know, South Carolina right wingers uh, to go along with it. And like, I'm sure it sounds brilliant to Rachel Maddow or somebody to say, um, she just should have called them all racists. But that's not how you get <laughs> people to actually go along with something they don't want to do. And so like that, that muscle memory of, don't talk, you know, it's sort of like the Monty Python thing. Don't talk about the war. That's a big thing in South Carolina, yeah. right? Oh, for <laughs> and, sure. And, um, and uh, or at least don't talk about the war and slavery in, the, you know, all that stuff. And lastly, I think she just thought she was too high on the New Hampshire audience's alleged libertarianism. And, and, and maybe you could add a fourth, which is that she has the MAGA crowd in her head trying to turn her into a rhino. And she was like, how do I answer this with all that stuff? And she's just screwed up. But like, it's worth pointing out, the only reason we're talking about it, other than the fact that it's such catnip for the mainstream media, which just loves to talk about, you know, the threat of neo-Confederate Indian immigrants, you know, or whatever, but um, uh, is that uh, it's rare. Like, like we wouldn't be talking about a, ga- a similar gaffe from Donald Trump for more than five seconds because he says crazy stuff all the time. She's really disciplined because she's a good politician. And, and she came out of she won three out of the four debates. I think it's fair to say. Um, uh, 
And so it was a rare misstep. And so combine that with a bad, with a slow news week, and it became a big thing. But it was the exception that proved the rule that she's actually really good and disciplined and a good politician. And that's the weird, dark irony of this is that by proving she's a good politician with a gaffe, she actually hurt herself more by reminding people that she's a good politician. Right. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to uh, really affect the results in New Hampshire. I don't either. I don't either. One way or yeah. the other. There's still plenty of time. And I think she's turned the page on her comments. But it will remind, I think, a lot, uh, a lot of Republican voters that she is representative of the pre-Trump Republican Party in ways that uh, they may be suspicious of. And so Haley's big problem is, how does she convert her momentum into a broad Republican coalition in a way that could actually prevent Trump from being the nomination? Right now, she's doing very well in New Hampshire. She's gaining steam in New Hampshire. But New Hampshire is a very odd state. I mean, you know, you, you can have Democrats and independents vote in the Republican primary. And it seems clearly the case that there's a lot of anti-Trump or resistance to Trump uh, sentiment in the New Hampshire electorate. And so the candidate who can gather together all that anti-Trump sentiment could potentially pull off an upset in New Hampshire. Then what do you do when you go to her home state of South Carolina, say, that uh, it's going to be tough because to win in South Carolina, um, you have to appeal to the Republican primary electorate and you have to do it in a way that eats into the MAGA coalition. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it does highlight that Chris Christie should just drop out. Look, he, in terms of the things he says about Trump, he's the one I agree with the most in the field. Some people are more enraged by the hypocrisy of some of his Trump criticism, whatever. I kind of disagree with some of my friends on the right about that. Like uh, Ramesh Panuru always used to say, we shouldn't necessarily be against flip-flopping if you're flipping from the position you disagree with to the position you agree with. And if we're going to basically have a debathification program of the Trump of the Republican Party that says anybody who once supported Donald Trump can no longer be a person in good standing, then you might as well just fold up shop. Right? Well, the result was chaos in Iraq. And so it might right. be continued chaos in the Republican Party. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch Christie. He gets into the race to be the anti-Trump candidate. It would be an irony of historic proportions if his continued presence in the race denies the uh, one you know, right. likely uh, opportunity, it seems, to change this this race in a direction that could leave Trump without the nomination. Um, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, he he come he's making the point that a gaffe like the one Haley committed or her kind of uneven performance at the most recent Republican debate shows that he's the genuine article and she's just another politician. Um, but, you know, I think New Hampshire voters have had plenty of time to evaluate whether they want to support Chris Christie for president. I mean, they also had an earlier opportunity in 2016 right. that they did not take. Um, and it seems to me the message is pretty clear from the electorate based on polling that he's unlikely to win in New Hampshire and unlikely to be the Republican nominee. So going forward, I think we can both stipulate that if you had to bet your mortgage right now, you would bet that Trump is the nominee. I don't think that's a hard bet to make, right? may not be a fun bet, a joyful bet, but it's, it's sort of a purely rational kind of thing. Uh, what would you say is the most likely scenario by which um, Trump is not the nominee? Which doesn't mean it's a likely scenario, just of the very unlikely scenarios that this happens, what is the most likely one to you? Well, I used to think that uh, the Continetti dream scenario would consist of uh, DeSantis upsetting Trump in Iowa and then Haley following it a week later with an upset in New Hampshire. And with Trump losing the first two contests, I think, would shake things up and maybe open up uh, opportunities um, for a real race. Now, I, I'm less convinced that DeSantis is going to have an upset victory in Iowa. So I almost think that Haley needs to beat DeSantis in Iowa in order to springboard to New Hampshire. And if she shows that she's in second in Iowa uh, and then wins in New Hampshire, 
that can give her, I think, forward momentum to a kind of a big battle in South Carolina. I mean, historically, the rule is in the Republican primary, you, you know, you need to win two of the first three contests. And if you do that, you're going to be the nominee. And South Carolina in particular has been very critical in um, the modern Republican nominating fights. The future in politics is never a straight line projection of the present, as Fred Barnes always taught me. Uh, this rosy scenario could happen. Maybe DeSantis will pull off a Des Moines miracle. You know, he has Kim Reynolds, the governor, behind him. He has Bob Vanderplatz, the big um, uh, social conservative activist in Iowa, behind him. He's been to all 99 counties. He was there on New Year's Eve. Iowa, too, has, uh, you know, unusual characteristics. It really rewards in-person campaigning. It is uh, a socially conservative state. And Ron DeSantis has been the social conservative candidate. And Ron DeSantis has kind of found himself in the same role as Ted Cruz in 2016 as being the candidate of the very conservative voter um, or the candidate of kind of the movement conservative voter. And while that candidate rarely wins the nomination, they do usually score an upset or become the uh, also ran, basically, when the race gets to two people. So I'm not counting DeSantis out yet, um, though it seems like right now the big question is how well does Haley perform in the first two contests? Um Leaving electoral politics aside, uh, it is possible that um, both DeSantis and Haley are playing for backup mm -hmm. um, in the event of uh, some sort of health crisis, in the event of the Trump trial taking place on schedule. Remember, the D.C. trial was scheduled for uh, the day after Super Tuesday in March. Um, the, I don't know how long the trial is going to last, but I expect it to be concluded by the time of the Republican convention. And if there's a conviction, uh, well, of course, there will be chaos, but a conviction could then mean that Trump doesn't continue um, to be the nominee designate. And in that case, if you did have a situation where there needed to be an alternative, um, either Haley or DeSantis would want to have some delegates uh, in their corner. But this is a very unlikely scenario. I mean, I think when you look at the macro level right now, you have the two main political parties headed by uh, old men who are extremely stubborn and who are determined to win the 2024 election. And the, the likelihood of that changing uh, is very low and would probably come from a very low probability, high impact, impact event uh, that, uh, you know, usually when those low probability, high impact events occur, it's completely out of the blue. Uh, so it's almost impossible to speculate. No, I think that's basically right. I mean, and plus there's this, you know, it's the great rule about punditry is if predict something is only 60% or 40% likely to happen or likely not to happen in that way, it sounds like you have a granular grasp on the situation, but it's also not falsifiable. Um, when you're talking about, when you stipulate that all these things are unlikely, you know, it becomes, it becomes pure conjecture and speculation. And yet people love that. People they love, do love it. It's very people weird. People love talking <laughs> and hearing about things that are probably not going to happen. So um, the, uh, I wish all these people who are running as the backup people you know, the 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 break glass in case of emergency candidates would give us a little speculation about what the emergency would be, right? I mean, it seems like incumbent upon them to sort of not leave that sort of implied and, and actually make it out. But then again, I guess it's, it would sound like you're hoping that Trump has an aneurysm or something like that, which is not a great political move. And it should be noted, it's also happening on the Democratic side. I mean, yeah. when you look at some of the actions that um, Gretchen Whitmer's of Michigan is taking, uh, Gavin Newsom in California, they clearly are looking at delegates who will be at the Democratic convention uh, later this year um, and saying to themselves in the back of their minds, well, if again, if an act of God occurs and all of a sudden it's not going to be um, Joe Biden uh, and that maybe it's an actual 
you know, brokered convention or convention that's fought out on the floor. Um, they want to have some uh, political capital to use in that circumstance as well. So you're right. It's this very kind of odd situation where um, you have a lot of conniving understudies uh, waiting for something to happen to the leading men, but they're not honest about uh, what that might be or what their um, actual plan is to get the spotlight. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So what is your, um, what was your reaction? I can't remember if I listened to it on the commentary podcast, but the Trump will be a dictator talk, mm -hmm. right? The, which seems to have died down for a little while, but mm -hmm. rest assured it will be back. All liberal bedwetting or half liberal bedwetting? Well, if a few things. Uh, I mean, this conversation was really initiated by Robert Kagan, um, the foreign affairs columnist and uh, diplomatic historian, uh, and a man whom I admire tremendously, wrote a massive essay um, for the Washington Post saying that the Trump dictatorship is coming. I read the essay, and uh, I then went back and I read a lot of Kagan's writings about Trump. Um, and he has been among the most vocal opponents of Trump uh, since Trump first appeared in 2015. And what I found was that um, Kagan gets a lot of kind of the directionality of the Trump presidency and Trump movement uh, correct, but he doesn't get the details correct. So, for example, before the 2020 election, he also wrote a big column for The Washington Post. And that's kind of what Bob does. He writes big columns. And he said that Trump will try to hold on to office. Um, this is before the voting happened. And he said that people should be prepared to take to the streets uh, because Trump will try to hold on to office and all of his underlings will support him. And of course, that didn't actually happen. Trump did try to hold on to office. It was at least half, right? <laughs> well, that's my point. Yeah. So, right. So when I read the Trump dictatorship, essay, I'm saying, I'm thinking in the back of my head, well, the half right part is that, yeah, would Trump like to be a dictator? Of course. He, he, he's open about that, right? But what will it look like in practice if Donald Trump returns to the White House? I think it will be slightly different than what Kagan lays out in his article. I think it will be very chaotic. I think there will be a lot of, um, uh, disputes legal, political in the streets. I think the radical left will be um, catalyzed and will expand just as it did during Trump's first uh, term in office. Um, I also think Trump will back down in a lot of instances. He he backed down as president quite a bit. Um, like a lot of bullies, you know, if you if you do resist him, he he will kind of back off. Oftentimes, Trump is also obsessed with his image. And, and that can um, alter his behavior in certain ways if he sees that what he's done or um, is not playing well with either his base or with kind of the media at large, because he's in these codependent relationships with reporters like Maggie Haberman, for example. Um, so uh, am I concerned? Yes, absolutely, about what another Trump term would look like. I don't think it would be good for the country or the world, um, but I'm... I, I also don't think it, it would result in the type of dictatorship that uh, Kagan laid out in that piece. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think problem I have with a lot of the reaction to it on the right is because he's 
it's like, find the weakest link in the armor, say this is unreasonable, and therefore we have nothing to worry about, right? Which is like, the truth is, is like, let's say he's only inclined to be 50% of a dictator. That's pretty bad, right? You know, and and one of the reasons why Trump backed down a lot in the last time was he had a lot of people that a lot of the 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 a lot of people now celebrating the Trump is dictator talk um, were also the ones who said that Barr and Kelly and all those people and Millie were all sort of. Um, collaborators and sold their souls for working with Trump in the first place. And now they're seen as sort of heroes and the lack of those people will be uh, calamitous. Now, I agree with the last part. I think the lack of those people will be calamitous. If you've got, you know, Gorka and Dave Reboy and a bunch of those people uh, and other Bananistas and, um, and no federal society lawyers, right, um, which they've been pretty clear about, surrounding Trump, um, if, you know, if Tom Fitton is the next attorney general, acting attorney general, because of course he can never get confirmed and he's not a lawyer. Um, the things that Trump will try to do could be really, really bad before he fails at them and will test all sorts of parts of our institutional framework in ways that, uh, we will regret one, because some of these institutions are really weak. But two, you're going to get buy-in from, I mean, like, does anyone doubt that Jesse Waters is going to get Trump's back on some terribly stupid things or that Tucker Carlson will or, and that therefore large numbers of conservatives will be acclimated to making arguments about strongman stuff, even if they end up failing, right? It's, there is a, there's a sort of a, a demonstration or educational effect that I really worry about that. I agree that Trump will fail to be a, an effective dictator because he's Trump. But the act of trying can have a sort of baptismal effect on the thinking of a lot of conservatives that um, will s send us down a really bad path for the next guy. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can see that. I also think that Trump is a very unique person. And um, I don't know who the next guy is or, or yeah. whether they're capable of the type of thing that uh, Trump can do. I mean, Trump's kind of extraordinary. I, I, I love, I don't know if you know this little episode in Magaville over the past couple of days, but, you know, the, the big thing among the MAGA movement is that the FBI needs to be abolished, right? And mm -hmm. we need to completely deconstruct the deep state. But someone told Trump that about this plan to move the FBI headquarters out of D.C. And what does Trump do? Well, he goes on Truth Social and he says, no, this is totally wrong. The FBI needs to have a huge new headquarters right in smack in the middle of Washington. It needs to be the gold standard law <laughs> yeah. enforcement. I mean, that's Trump because no one can even begin to understand how his mind works, but it always disappoints. Right. So in this case, it's disappointing the MAGA people who would think, no, no, we need to break up the FBI. We need to get rid of the FBI. No, Trump wants to build a beautiful headquarters uh, right there on Pennsylvania Avenue. So uh, that type of unpredictability is why I'm not quite sold, even on the idea that, you know, Tom Fitton will be the attorney general. Mm -hmm. One thing that will happen, I'm convinced, if Trump wins this primary uh, pretty handily, and, or even when, if it's something of a contest and he ends up the nominee, the pressure to consolidate around him will be immense. Mm -hmm. And so there will be a lot of, quote unquote, establishment Republicans who all of a sudden will be like, oh, of course, Trump, you know. Right. Um, and there will be figures in another Trump administration who are, are more, I don't know, conventionally Republican. Right. And so the drama of the f first four years will carry on into the second. There has to be drama. That's the whole secret. I think to Trump's appeal. I, I was struck, you know, there was this op-ed in the New York Times uh, last month by Matthew Schmitz, one of the editors at Compact Journal. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, well, you know, the secret to Trump's success is his essential moderation. <laughs> and I, I thought that that misses the mark. I mean, while it's true that when you look at the actual details of many of Trump's stated policy stand, uh, positions, they are kind of in the middle 
of mm -hmm. American public opinion. That's not the secret to his appeal. The secret to his appeal is his outrageousness, that he will say anything, that he is this, you know, he's this billionaire from Queens, New York, who has the Trump Tower building with the false number of stories. And yet he'll go in front of the West Virginia coal miners and start shoveling coal. And people go crazy because he's the professional wrestling heel. He's the reality TV star. And he calls everybody on their BS. That's why Republican voters like Donald Trump, not his moderation. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, the I mean, it's, it sort of reminds me of uh, his Schmidt Schmidt's co-editor, uh, Sora Bamari, you know, in that kerfuffle with David French, saying that at the end of the day, uh, Donald Trump is on the side of social order. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, he's really not. <laughs> um, I but so our 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 friend and colleague, um, your now rival in the <laughs> vicious prison house, con, you know, prison gang conflicts of AI, you all live in, uh, you know, he, he, he makes this, um, point, which I invoke a lot about how cynicism is really hard to maintain. And, um, so we know a great number of people who made, we would call it cynical or transactional choices in 2016, 2015 and 2016 to support or get behind or see Trump through the most favorable light possible. Um, and, but virtually all of them saw it as the lesser evil kind of thing. Uh, it lasted for a while with the butt Gorsuch phenomenon. And, and then something happened. A lot of people just got off the train and said, I can't, I can't defend this stuff any longer. Um, some, it took till January 6th to say that, but they did, um, at least publicly. And then, um, but some people, the majority of them could not sustain this transactional argument for four years of Trump. And they had to sort of convince themselves that he's a good guy and that he's doing, uh, he's, 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 He's rightly motivated. I mean, I remember, I remember getting into a spat with uh, David Horowitz where, you know, I would say, for, I've been saying for seven years now, give me a definition of good character that Donald Trump can meet. And no one's successfully done it by my lights, not a single person. But Horowitz tried and he was like, well, first of all, he loves his family, which um, is a pretty low bar, if true. Um, and I can give you more counterexamples of him being nasty to his family than they can give me examples of him loving his family, but whatever. And the other is Horowitz argued he's loyal to a fault. I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and my point is, is that if you read all these now exhausting, you know, talk to people in the Iowa caucuses, you know, talk to people in, in the parking lot of Walmart or at a Trump rally kind of things. No one, none of these people have any sort of transactional understanding of the guy. They believe an otherworldly interpretation of it. And that I think is, um, I agree with you that the, 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 the sort of subliminal appeal of Trump is the drama, right? And the outrage and all that kind of stuff. But the rationalization that goes through a lot of people's heads is like, this guy's he knows exactly what he's doing. He's planning ahead. He's a Christian. He's, right. you know, all these things, none of which are true. And if you live in that universe and you believe those things, your ability to justify or rationalize a lot of terrible things um, is pretty large. And yeah. I think that's the bad environment that I worry about, which could lead to violence and other things. I think the question is, how big is that group? Uh, I think what you're describing is true of the diehards, um, the people who go to rally after rally. And uh, that's a sizable contingent. Um, I, I don't know how big it is uh, in numer num yeah. numerical terms. Um, and I do think we're in this weird split screen political moment where there's Trump, his dominance of the Republican Party, the Republican primary race. Uh, Biden's unpopularity, um, all of the crises uh, affecting our country. Um, you know, D.C. just had its worst uh, murder year um, in, uh, in decades. Um, the border, 
the price level is too high for many people. And yet on the other side of the screen is the fact that Democrats continue to outperform expectations in election after election. And part of me just thinks that as soon as Trump secures the Republican nomination, everything will turn to his trials, to his scandals. It will be all about the fight for democracy. It will be all about if you elect Trump, the abortion rights will be restricted throughout the country. And uh, what we've seen from the electorate really since 2016, since he won the first time, is a deep allergy to Trump and Trumpism. So that's why I guess I, I still think that the chances of him winning uh, the 2024 election um, are, 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 are not, not as high as I think other pundits are saying. Yeah, no, I agree with that. As, as a matter of punditry, I, I still think you have to assume Biden, Biden will have the edge um, or, you know, certainly Gavin Newsom uh, <laughs> would have the edge. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chumpacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So let's turn to this. I, I, find, I really find talking about Biden so exhausting. Biden finds Biden exhausting. Yeah, too. I mean, well, that's the thing. So like you, you and I both, I, I caught you on special report and I had made a very similar point earlier that day on CNN that uh and you're probably you were probably too young to have a palpable feeling about this stuff but like Biden's been reminding me more and more about Bush 1 in 92 mm -hmm. and that it's weird so like I I didn't vote for Bush 1 I voted for Andre Maru um and uh um I regret that um, I regret a lot of my votes. Um, and what was your first presidential vote? Was it 88? No, I guess it was, I don't think I voted in 88. Um, I was eligible to vote. I think my first one was 92. There you go. Yeah. Um, isn't that interesting? Cause in my first vote was 2000. I voted for Nader. Did you really? Shows you how young people really, we should raise Freaking. the voting age. Vivek's right. Vivek's uh <laughs> right. Um, uh, but it was, you, you just couldn't convince people the economy wasn't that bad. And, um, and I think that one of the things, and I, one of the things that killed Bush was that I used to have this big elaborate theory about how, um, the vice presidency wasn't that great a job politically because I mean, forget going to a lot of funerals. Um, we had only elected two since they fixed the constitution about the vice president being the guy who came in second. We had only elected two um, sitting vice presidents to the presidency. Um, it was Martin Van Buren in 1842 um, and George H.W. Bush. And um, because people don't, the vice president is a beta. Um, there are all these things that come with being vice president that don't make you feel like a leader. And if you had, a, the only way you would have a chance of doing it is if the guy you would work for had been successful enough to get elected twice. And so people are just tired and want to change, right? And so, but WHW had the advantage of running against Michael Dukakis, who was, you know, the perfect foil. Um, Cold War ended all these kinds of things. And so by the time you get to 92, people are just exhausted with Republicans. Republicans seemed exhausted. And the recession, which was not terrible, felt much worse than it really was. And the media really wanted it to be worse. 
That's kind of how it feels now. And that I, I think that one of the things that's being held against Biden is this exhaustion with Trump. But for whatever reason, we associate Biden with this era that's involved with the pandemic and Trump and all of these kinds of things. And so young people are exhausted with Biden. Republicans are obviously exhausted with Biden. And it just feels like it, I mean, all this stuff about how issue polling, I don't think really is very interesting now because they're just saying they don't like Biden. So whatever Biden's doing, they don't like the way he's handling it and they don't even know how he's handling it. And I, I don't know how you get past that. That's really hard. I think Biden has just been a bad president. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, John Ellis, uh, who does the news items, a newsletter on Substack, put it pretty well recently. He said, if you were convinced that 2020 was a Biden victory rather than a Trump loss, reality leaves the room. And of course, right. for the Biden folks, that's what they believe. They actually think they won some popular mandate to be right. this bold new uh, Democratic president in 2020. In fact, it was the public rejecting Trump, as the public did in 2018, and then as the public did in 2022. So that essential mistake uh, had led to just disasters, whether it was the reversal of all the immigration border stuff that has led to this continuing crisis, whether it was the huge stimulus uh, that created the inflation, whether it was the Afghan pullout, which incentivized Putin to then launch the war against Ukraine in 2022, uh, whether it's the continued um, uh, just idiotic policy toward Iran in the Middle East and this, this refusal to recognize reality, which is that Iran is a malevolent force and needs to be confronted directly if you want to restore order in the Middle East. All these things, I think, have really uh, affected the electorate's judgment of Biden. And on top of that, there's the age issue. And you know, Biden said he was going to be a transitional figure. People thought he was going to be Grandpa Joe. He was just going to try to broker deals with the Republicans and kind of be a force for stability. That's not how he launched his presidency. Um, and it continues to hurt him. And, of course, the age issue doesn't get any better. I mean, right. he gets older every second. And... How he can surmount that, I, I really don't know. I, I, I think it will come down again to the American electorate's fear of and distaste for Donald Trump. If the, 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 before the 22 election, I think it was um, Doug Schoen, the, the Democratic pollster, saying, look, if the 2022 election is change versus more of the same, Republicans are going to win big, as many people, including me, thought would happen. But if the election is stop the crazy, then the Republican gains are not going to be as right. major. And I think we're going to face the same choice this November. Is it going to be change more of the same? In which case, it, it is primed for a landslide victory for Republicans. Or is it going to be stop the crazy? In which case, you might get a very different result, a very muddled result. And we're seeing that in some of the polling just out recently. Voters are starting to have a little bit more confidence in the American economy. Who knows whether that's um, justified or not? Uh, voters, you know, if they're given these choices right now, then many are attracted to the third party candidates. But in November, it may be more of a binary, binary choice. And in that case, parts of the Biden coalition may come back. Um, what I can say is that it won't be for love of Biden. <laughs> that Biden wins a second term. It will be fear of the alternative. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think the, um, I mean, this is always, always the problem with presidents is they want to think they have this mandate and mandates are BS. Yeah. Pure and simple, right? Because even if, let's just put it this way, right? You don't have to say, like, I think Joe Biden's mandate was to not be Donald Trump, right? He accomplished that day one. Uh, Donald Trump's mandate was to not be Barack Obama, right? I mean, um, Barack Obama, a huge part of his mandate was to not be George W. Bush, right? And, and but let's say that like only 30% of your voters voted against the other guy rather than for you. Well, as it's just a matter of math, that means nobody has a popular mandate to do anything, right? Because most voters in the aggregate didn't vote for this thing that you're claiming a mandate for. And, um, now, popularity is a different thing, 
right? If you're just a very, if you won by big numbers, then you say, well, I was elected. A lot of people voted for me to trust my judgment. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and blah, 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 blah. That's not a mandate for a policy, right? It was like George W. Bush was not elected, reelected in 2004 to reform Social Security. Um, uh, but he was reelected to be president again. And so like, you, it's, I, I find mandate talk to be one of the most maddening, cliched, almost German romantic ideas, <laughs> you know, the Volksgemeinschaft right. has spoken, um, that, uh, that gets banding around inside the beltway as a real thing. Um, and you would think, but the one thing you could say is that if you didn't even campaign on something to claim that you have a mandate after you're elected to do it is really ridiculous. <laughs> and Joe, Ma Joe Biden, campaign to be this bridge, right? He campaigned to be like return to normalcy guy. And um, that was the promise. And so the idea that you that he has a mandate to do a new New Deal is really kind of insulting to everyone's intelligence. Yeah, everyone's talking about the Trump's revenge tour if he wins the second term. But it strikes me that Biden's term has been something of a revenge tour against all the people who called him an idiot during his 50 years in politics. I mean, the first decision he made was, well, we're not going to go small with the stimulus. We're going to go big. We're going to spend $2 trillion more, even though the economy was recovering steadily and the vaccines were getting out and we were getting to a point where we could exit the pandemic. Instead, he wanted to correct for the perceived mistakes of the Obama stimulus right. in 2009. The same thing with Afghanistan. He had told Obama to get out of Afghanistan throughout his eight years as vice president. Obama didn't listen to him. Trump even uh, decided to stay in Afghanistan before he made that terrible peace deal with the Taliban in the last year of his presidency. So Biden was like, okay, we're going to do it now, and I don't care how we do it. And the result was a disaster. Um, servicemen dead, um, the blow to American credibility and deterrence. So you have this playing out with Biden kind of just trying to use his four years in office showing that actually he had been right all along. And it's just led to mistake after mistake. Um, the, uh, the public perception is an interesting point because what you saw with George H.W. was it reached a certain threshold where nothing he did really mattered. The electorate had just decided uh, we, can't, this, we can't have any more of George H.W. Bush. I, I, have, I wonder sometimes whether we're there uh, right now. I mean, if you just looked at the polling, when you have most people not wanting him to run again, when you have, again, just record low approval ratings, people on the Democratic side comfort themselves by saying, well, look, um, Democrats have been overperforming, as I, as I was just saying a few minutes ago. But that doesn't mean Biden has been overperforming. Right. If people, if, if voters aren't taking out their dislike of Biden on the Democratic Party, that's different than them not taking out their dislike of Biden on Biden. And yeah. they, may, they may do that in November. Yeah. I mean, it's also, I'm allowed to be a curmudgeon, right? So you're still, you can be the voice of the youth. Um, I'm a young fogey. We both know enough American history to know the, the, the ignorance of the median voter has always been greater than we would like to, than, than democracy voluptuaries would sometimes like to concede. I do, and I know grouches like me often lapse into get off my lawn stuff, but I've been talking about how youth politics sucks since I was young. Um, the ignorance of the general voter um, or, of, or of key constituencies is something I don't think people really appreciate. I've been seeing this stuff coming up in some polling about how, um, or at least in anecdotal reporting, um, a lot of young people are holding Dobbs against Biden because the Supreme Court got rid of abortion on his watch. And um, I'm not going to leap to Biden's defense on a lot of things, but that's really not his fault. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I do think that it's funny. We've talked about this a million times, but for most of our lives, you know, Ramesh's analysis that abortion, the abortion issue was good for Republicans at the polls and Democrats with fundraising. It feels like that has truly and sincerely flipped 
um, since Dobbs. And, um, and first of all, do you think that's right? And B, how much anger should there be at Republicans, pro-lifers, Federal Society, constitutionalist types, all these people, for being totally unprepared to deal with the political climate post-Dobbs? Is this an understandable mistake? Or is this malpractice or someplace in between? Well, uh, what's the Rumsfeld saying? A catastrophic victory, right? Um, <laughs> in some ways, the overturning of Roe v. Wade was that for the pro-life movement. In other ways, not. Uh, it's hard for me to really tease out the significance of abortion and some of the uh, election results we've seen. I do know this. When it's an up or down choice presented to voters, more abortion or less, uh, voters have been going for the more abortion uh, position. And that's what you've seen in ballot initiatives across the country, including in some red states, including in Ohio, right, which is a Republican bastion now in the Trump era and which had passed and the governor signed um, uh, a six-week limit. Um, so when you do it up or down, the pro-choice side, um, the abortion rights side wins. When it is attached to individual candidates, there I think candidates matter quite a bit. And so you can have Republicans who have a pro-life positions or support limits at six weeks or 15 weeks, they can still win office. Uh, what matters is how they talk about the issue, how they defend their position. And so you've seen in some of the close-run House races, for example, including one in Virginia's 7th District where Abigail Spanberger defeated um, Yesley Vega in 2022, Vega's comments, including some unscripted comments about abortion, came out to hurt her. And that's, of course, what we saw even under Roe uh, with, um, you know, the legitimate rape Todd Aiken, right? Mm -hmm. And then Richard Mordock. So I'd say the jury is still out, so to speak, on how big a problem it is for the Republican Party that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. For example, Republicans did not have a very good 2023. Uh, including in Virginia, where my governor, Glenn Youngkin, wanted to go for the trifecta. He wanted to convert the state uh, legislature to red, to the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, part of that campaign was to rally the Virginia Republican Party around a 15-week limit on abortions and say, well, this is where we are. Uh, we're not for a total ban. We're going to have exceptions. This is what we're going to uh, support. Well. You can read the election results and say it was a bad year for Republicans and Youngkin failed uh, to get the legislature. And maybe his abortion position has something to do with that. You can also read it as Ramesh Panuru and John McCormick, now with the dispatch, has done uh, and said, well, in truth, you know, Republicans had, all things considered, not a bad night mm -hmm. in, in Virginia. You know, it could have gone better, of course, but it wasn't a total landslide defeat for them. And maybe the fact that they could say, well, here's our position and this is how we explain it, help them. So I guess I'm of, uh, I'm of two minds, but or I'm not, I'm not really of two minds. I, I think it all dependent on how the question is put to voters. And this is why I do think Republicans should be worried about November 2024 is because there are going to be many ballot measures um, of ask, asking the electorate up or down do mm -hmm. you want more abortion or less? And that it's I gonna think, be like Rove in two thousand four with gay marriage. Yes, I think that could motivate turnout in ways that hurt um, the Republican candidates uh, if the if the people who go out to support those uh, pro choice ballot initiatives vote straight Democrat. That will that will hurt Republicans. Yeah. All right, I can keep you on here, but there's only so much punditry America can take at this stage. Um, we have to ease into twenty twenty four. Tiny. It's like taking poison. If you just take a tiny dose of punditry every day, you build up your tolerance and you're going to be able to survive the election year. Punditry as Iocane powder. Um, <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> All right, Dr. Continetti. Um, thank you so much for being here. I'm sorry, Herr Director uh, Continetti. Um, of course, when you have German titles attached to Italian last names, it kind of there's something going on there about you know raises questions but so be it thank you again for doing this and we'll have you back soon thanks jonah
Okay, so hair director Continetti has left the studio. Um, I wanted to, I was just talking to him for about it for a second. I wanted to get into some of the Israel stuff, but it was just too depressing and we were short on time. And, um, and I'm just getting my sea legs back on this whole podcasting thing. So, um, uh, so other than that, um, I hope again, everyone had a great New Year's. And just because it's now 2024, uh, that doesn't mean you can't get someone or yourself, um, either, get, either give someone else or yourself a gift subscription to the dispatch. And I never ask you guys for like reviews on iTunes or any of that kind of stuff. But if you're so inclined, give us a nice review. If you're not inclined, don't give us a nice review. It's whatever. Um, I, I don't know how much that matters, but um, word of mouth is good. So if you want to proselytize a little bit for either the remnant or the dispatch or even advisory opinions, um, please do so. And um, on that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.